This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by uh, Dr. John Cook, who is a research assistant professor at the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University. Uh, His research focus is understanding and countering misinformation about climate change with an emphasis on using critical thinking to build resilience. He founded Skeptical Science and authored the book, Cranky Uncle Versus Climate Change, combining climate science, critical thinking, and cartoons to explain and counter climate misinformation. He also co-authored the college textbooks, Climate Change, Examining the Facts, and Climate Change Science, A Modern Synthesis, and the book, Climate Change Denial, Heads in the Sand. Anyway, John, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, I I always kind of do this with... uh, with scientists is I'm just really curious to hear kind of your journey into science. I want to know like how you started, uh, started this whole journey. When did you first become interested in science? Um, when did I become interested in science? Well, being a nerd all the way in, I (laughs) I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in science, but I went straight from high school into doing a physics degree. Um, so it was always a given that I would, (laughs) it was a foregone conclusion that, that I would study science. And even when I finished my physics degree and I left academia, I left science and, you know, did other things, did graphic design, did cartooning for a while. Gradually science pulled me back in again. It's like the Godfather. <laughs> so you, you tried to move away, but you just kind of got, got sucked in by science's strong gravitational field. Said, exactly. You know, this is, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is, this is what I need to do. Now, so you said you have an undergraduate degree in physics, and I'm curious as to how you decided that that's the area of science that you wanted to go into. So, you know, obviously there's a bunch of different areas that you can go into, but like, why was, how was physics kind of like, yes, this is the science that I want to do, as an undergraduate at least. Yeah, gee, that's that's going back. I have to think about the thought processes. I I remember at the time I I was interested in AI, so I was looking a lot at computer science and in my first year, I did a bit of computer science, a bit of physics, a bit of maths. Um, the maths uh, just freaked me. It was like a, another uh, universe. And the, the maths lecturers at the university were like these alien creatures. And, <laughs> and, and I decided, well, physics is a lot easier than, than mathematics. So <laughs> let's go the easy route. So <laughs> Which is interesting because obviously, you know, as, a, as somebody who does a physics degree, you actually need quite a bit of mathematics. I suppose it's not as quite abstract and esoteric though as like pure math where you're kind of living with physics you're the mathematics is there to facilitate these physical concepts that you're grappling with and so i guess it's grounding the 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 abstract is kind of being grounded with these concrete concepts to a degree yeah at least yeah no absolutely absolutely and i 
as somebody who also studied physics, I can definitely relate with the, the being drawn to more or appreciating more of the, the applied math, the mathematics that can be taken and then used to understand the world better versus kind of going off in your own uh, alternate dimension or own universe where you're manipulating these abstract symbols and it's not really attached to reality at all. And I know yeah. a, mathem a mathematician might might take offense to that. But I mean, I, I think to a degree, you have to admit that pure math, if you can't attach pure math to reality, then you're just kind of pushing symbols around at some point, solving fun puzzles. Yeah, the exception to the rule being maybe quantum mechanics, where the mathematics there was, uh, <laughs> and, and the concepts were all pretty out there. Uh, I remember that subject in my fourth year being really challenging. Uh, I can relate. Yeah, I, I think that in graduate school, like out of, of all of the physics courses that I ever took, the only physics classes that I really got B's in were, was quantum mechanics because it's so abstract and I had a hard time like wrapping my mind around what exactly is going on because you can't really visualize anything. So with the other types of physics, you can to a degree visualize what is going on. But when, the, when you get to quantum mechanics, you're talking about things that operate on a, you know, atomic level. So you obviously can't see them. It's very hard to kind of, you can't really visualize it either. Um, so you develop more of like a mathematical, I suppose, intuition when you're working with quantum mechanics versus the physical intuition uh, that you develop when you're working with other aspects of physics. But yeah, no, I can definitely relate with the quantum mechanics being super abstract and difficult. But anyway, yes, okay, so, so physics as an undergraduate, and then did you go on, you decided at some point, you're like, you know what, I want to go on and get a graduate degree, so you have a PhD, obviously. So did you, go, uh, did you go straight through then? Like, did you go bachelor's, then into graduate school, maybe a master's first, then a PhD, or did you take a break after? Uh, I after took a long break, and I, when I, it wasn't even a break, it was finishing academia. And, and I after your bachelor's into, degree? Into um, just working in, uh, you know, in business, uh, well, not business so much, but, doing graphic design, doing website design and databases and, and cartooning. Like I was, I, during my physics degree, I was drawing a lot of cartoons okay. in my physics notes. Uh, and I wanted to, I, there was that kind of element of science and art and I wanted to pursue the art direction for, well, um, for a bit at least. And, and so I was, I was doing this as a career. I was working full time doing design and cartoons. And in my spare time, I started um, building a website about climate change, just as a hobby, as something that I was interested in. Uh, and it was it was that process of running a website about climate science, uh, and really doing a science communication task. It was like I was doing public engagement and trying to explain physics and, and climate science to the public, and it was the Several years into that, I, I, I learned that there was a whole science to science communication. And that eye-opening, I guess, revelation is what was the precipitating event to pulling me back into academia and, and eventually doing a PhD. That's fascinating. So, okay, so you got, a, you, got a, you got your bachelor's degree. You had a hobby of cartooning and you really, really enjoyed no, no, art. A career of cartooning. Yeah, you did it. Okay, so you had, so um, it wasn't like graphic 
of graphic design career um, in particular, you said you actually, so you actually like we're uh, making money off of creating cartoons then as well. Yeah, yeah. I was, oh. I was doing comic strips in newspapers um, okay. and, and a website um, that was making some income from, from advertising and did that for about a decade. I was, I was pretty much working full time as a cartoonist for roughly a decade. Okay. That's fascinating. Okay, so the website that you're referring to, I'm assuming, is Skeptical Science, then the climate change yes, website. Okay, exactly. And wow. Okay, uh, did you like draw for the school newspaper? Like you had your own strip in the school newspaper and everything, or did you? When I was uh, at university back during undergrad. Okay. Is that your question? Yeah. Yeah. I was just. Um, yeah. I was curious if you actually had like a column in your school newspaper. Because I, I, I did, remember. Yeah, I did draw, I think, one or two cartoons for the school magazine. Um, they weren't very good. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a university magazine. I think the uh, standards were quite low. And they were really weird, weird uni stuff, you know. Okay. So, well, I mean, you got to get started somewhere, right? So exactly. you got you got started in your undergraduate. You were in the uh, school newspaper, and you got your first kind of taste for what it means to create comic strips for an audience. Uh, okay, that's that's really really fascinating. So skeptical science, you know, with your undergraduate in physics, I don't like I don't remember global warming being talked a whole lot in the physics department. Probably more in the geology department. Where did your passion kind of for global warming develop um that you were like concerned about it i mean i know that the entire scientific community is something that is on everyone's mind but like why did you decide that you needed to create skeptical science to go out there and like communicate the science of global warming yeah climate change wasn't on my radar at all during university um Although once I was digging through my old notes and I found an assignment, assignment I wrote, I think in 1992, um, for an, I think it was an oceanography um, class about global warming. And I think it was just asking, is global warming happening? And I think that if I recall correctly, the conclusion was in my essay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. It yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't on my radar until much much later. It was really around two thousand and seven, um, and that's when uh, a lot of people started taking notice. I think Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth brought a lot of attention to the issue. Um, the IPCC brought out a report, I think, in two thousand and seven, and it just really opened a lot of people's eyes. I started getting into conversations with family members including my father-in-law, who was a vociferous climate denier. He was firmly against it. And so we would have these lunches, family lunches, where he would be arguing against global warming and you know, arguing that it's a hoax. And, and after the, one of these lunches, I went home and started researching all the different arguments he gave and realized, actually, now what he did, that's right, after lunch, he left the room and then he came back with a printout. And the printout was a speech by Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe, um, where he basically argued that global warming was the biggest hoax perpetrated on the American public. And <laughs> it's kind of weird that, you know, it's my, we're in Australia, we're on the other side of the world, and he's printing out a speech by an, a senator. And I thought, 
Well, a senator sounds like an important, reputable person, so there must be some substance to this argument, right? I was very naive back then. Uh, and so when I started researching the arguments in, in Hoff's speech, I realized that there was very little science in his arguments about climate change. And the, the scientific arguments that he did have in there were all wrong. They were all basically misinformation. And so as a competitive son-in-law, anticipating the next family get together, I started building a list of the possible arguments that I might encounter in the next get together. And then what did the science say about each one? And basically building a database of climate myths and the peer reviewed science relative to each climate myth. Uh, and that personal database eventually um, became skeptical science. I realized that other people had fathers-in-laws or cranky uncles or you know, family members or friends or colleagues that denied climate science, and they might find this collection of uh, peer-reviewed climate science a useful resource. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that can relate with what you just said, where, you know, you have a family member or perhaps a close friend who is using these flawed arguments in order to justify their positions. And this is, this is very common. And I, I can definitely relate to this personally, because I actually was one of those people where I didn't want to acknowledge these like scientific consensus around genetically modified food safety, or even vaccine safety. And that's really hard for me to say as a science person. But I had like convinced myself at some point, like that the science wasn't settled. And it was still earlier in my scientific training. So I didn't really understand science on a deeper level, like how it worked. I just kind of how knew how to do it at a superficial level. So I knew enough to be dangerous is what I tell people. <laughs> and uh, could I yeah. ask a question? Um, yeah. Was there like often people deny science because they're motivated for some reason, whether it's political ideology or religious beliefs or like their social group that they belong to. Yes. Do you think that there was anything in particular that was predisposing you to be skeptical of vaccines? Or, yes, um, yes, absolutely. And I've talked about this at length on the uh, website and you know, on, on social media and whatnot, but uh, I grew up to a parent that got involved who uh, was a dentist and then they at some point got involved with like the complementary and alternative medicine crowd. So I was at one point was actually working in that community, involved with them regularly, and there is strong anti-science sentiments. And I, you know, being a science person, I was trying to dig through the science and trying to figure out why it is that these positions were as uh, controversial, I guess, like, is there, is there really something going on here? Why does this community not believe these things? And in particular, why does my one parent not acknowledge the consensus surrounding these uh, you know, uh, vaccine safety and genetically modified food safety. So I was digging through it and, you know, I would engage in cherry picking regularly, finding these scientific studies that, you know, were published in uh, fringe, fringe journals, or perhaps the conclusions weren't pointing to the conclusions that I actually thought, like, thought that was actually being said. Uh, you know, I thought it was supporting my position, but it was really not doing that. It was not supporting my position at all, even though um, I thought it was. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, John, it was mostly trying to fit in. Uh, you know, as you know, 
the psychology uh, of it all when you are, you know, as a human wanting to fit into a group and then you're willing to, I guess, justify certain beliefs in order to fit in. And also having a parent too, uh, somebody that you have a lot of respect for uh, that raised you, you want to justify to a degree their positions as well. So, uh, and again, too, I didn't, I didn't really have the scientific training. So the justification was trying to fit in to, and also to justify uh, my parents' position, my one parent's position on it. And then also not having the scientific training in order to understand why these positions are flawed, uh, engaging in cherry picking, things of that nature. Um, I didn't have, while I was trained in science, I didn't have a strong like philosophy background in logic, things of that nature, argumentation. Uh, that was something that I had to teach myself. And eventually, when I started hitting brick walls with people arguing online, like on Reddit or on Facebook, because I couldn't argue my positions, I eventually got led into logic, learning about cognitive biases, how do you structure a good argument, et cetera. And that's what, that's what this platform is now, because I just wish it was more widely taught <laughs> that, than it is. And I can't really understand for the life of me why it isn't. And even as somebody who went through the scientific training process, I feel, I, I feel uh, as though I was slighted a bit because I don't understand why like, I didn't have philosophy education like mandatory. Um, particularly logic or maybe philosophy of science or something of that nature as a part of my scientific training to just give me a better foundational understanding of how science is structured essentially and why we know that the results that come out the back end of it have the best chances of reflecting reality. So, but anyway, yeah. that's kind of a long-winded response to your, to your, to your inquiry. But yeah, at the end of the day, it was, trying to fit in, I guess. That was the justification was trying to fit in and also wanting to look highly upon my one particular parent. Cool. I mean, social pressures are incredibly highly influential and, and more influential than people realize. There's, there's you know, plenty of research showing that it's, it's, it can be almost overwhelming in terms of influencing people's behavior and beliefs. So. And, and in climate change now, because the issue has become polarized, now it, it essentially is social pressure or, or um, political affiliation is is the biggest driver of climate denial. So it's it's again it's it's fitting in with what your tribe believes. Yes, and it's really really unfortunate the politicization of science because you know science is the best epistemological framework that we have for learning about our world and understanding it and making good decisions. I mean, how do you make, how do you make good policy decisions if you're not going to listen to what the science has to tell you? Mm -hmm. uh, it just becomes impossible at some point. And particularly with global warming, I think what is so alarming to me is that it has become adopted by an entire political party in the United States as like their position. Uh, and while they may not come out, the majority of them may not come out and overtly say these things that, or maybe, maybe they will, I don't know, but like, even so, there's some that over, overtly say it, and then there's plenty that just kind of follow along. And I know plenty of individuals today who align with this party, and then all of a sudden they adopt these things as well. And that is incredibly damaging because 
Uh, personally, I don't know how you feel about it, but with global warming, I think it's like the, one of the greatest problems that we've ever faced as a species, like in, in the last, you know, I don't know, 100,000 years or something of that nature. Uh, it, it's just the, the dangers that it poses to society and our way of life and the health of the planet in general. It's, uh, it's just really alarming. So I feel exactly the same way, um, which is why I've pretty much dedicated my life to addressing one of the biggest roadblocks to climate action, which is misinformation. Yes. So, okay. So bachelor's degree, then you took a break and then started the website, Skeptical Science. You're doing that, creating these awesome, your cartoons are great, by the way, uh, you know, creating these informative cartoons, you know, getting out there debunking arguments and misinformation along the way through your cartoons, uh, through the website, you know, listing arguments and why they're wrong. And then you get, so you get pulled back into science. At what point do you decide to go back and get your PhD? And then you don't actually, you don't have a PhD in physics or do you? No. No. So you went, just go back and I, your PhD is in cognitive science. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. Wonderful. So how, how did you decide then like, to, that you wanted to do cognitive science and that because all of this science communication, you're like, hey, you know what, I got to go back. I just got to do it. <laughs> um, so firstly, the, I, the cartoons, using cartoons against misinformation, I didn't do that for quite a while. That, that actually came after the PhD. Um, but uh, after I'd been doing skeptical science for several years, and I really came at it from the perspective of a natural scientist with a physics background. My, I had a very simplistic understanding of what, it, what public engagement about climate science or science communication was. It was really about you explain the facts to people and their attitudes and behaviors will change accordingly. Very much an information deficit model approach. People don't have the right information, give them the information and it's a problem solved. Uh, Several years into running my website with this approach, I received an email from a cognitive scientist from the University of Western Australia, Stefan Lewandowski, and he sent me some research into debunking misinformation. What the research found was if you debunk misinformation in the wrong way, it can be ineffective or it can even be counterproductive and potentially cause a backfire effect where people See, see the misinformation, read your debunking, and then come away after the debunking, believing the myth even more than before they read the debunking. Um, and when I looked at the bad way of debunking misinformation, it was exactly the same way that I was doing it on skeptical science. So just reading that research paper just was a complete shock to the system. It, it, opened my eyes not only to the, this existence of scientific research into how to debunk, um, but also the, the fact that if you don't do it right, you could make matters worse. Uh, and so that ended up being a life-changing email. I, I started diving into the research, uh, trying to educate myself on the best ways to debunk misinformation. Um, pretty quickly from that, I. I collaborated with Stefan Lundowski to create a debunking handbook. Uh, and then I asked him uh, if 
he was interested in being my PhD supervisor and starting a, a PhD research in um, how to more effectively debunk climate misinformation. So it was actually, uh, you said it was uh, Lewandowski, Stephen Lewandowski, that reached out to you then? And yeah, you all he was the, yeah, he he emailed me and changed my life, basically. That's, uh, that's fascinating. That's really, really fascinating. So uh, I'm curious as to how you were approaching debunking misinformation on your website prior to uh, Stephen sending you the research elucidating essentially that you were doing it the wrong way? Um, I was basically doing it the way a lot of fact checkers still do it now, which is putting the emphasis on the myth rather than putting the emphasis on the facts that you want okay. to look at. Uh, so I, the, the headline of my debunkings was um, the myth. And then I would restate the myth in a red box. And then I would have a long complicated article debunking it. Um, and the danger with that is details fade. So people might read the whole thing and they would understand it and accept it and believe it. And it would, you would successfully reduce belief in the myth. But over time, as the details fade, all they might remember is the headline um, and particularly older participants. And, and so this initial research published, I think in 2007, found that uh, older participants ended up believing the myth more after a delay. The, the, but I should really stress that this um, backfire effect has failed to replicate. Um, and so since that moment when I thought, oh my God, am I making things worse? There's been a lot of research published in the decade since. And especially research trying to replicate these backfire effects, and there are a range of different ones, and a lot, most of the research has failed to replicate it. Uh, and so the, the general sense in the misinformation research community now is backfire effects are not the boogeyman that we thought they were. And we shouldn't let fear of backfire effects prevent us from engaging with misinformation. The bigger danger is that we leave misinformation unchallenged. Yeah, I've also come across that as well with the backfire effect being uh, non-replicable that the that it may still be there but it's really not as big as we initially thought it was so that when you are engaging in debunking that you don't have to worry about the people walking away having a stronger uh, position than they did before uh, which is which is a relief to be honest with you because like you said uh, here you are thinking that you are doing something good right trying to get the facts out there debunking the myths and then you see this research and i think you're you know you can feel make yourself feel really bad <laughs> that <laughs> the people may actually walk away with a stronger uh stronger position than they did walking into it so you've actually made instead of instead of helping you've actually made it worse which is yeah it's yeah i, I mean i think that probably the, the overemphasis on backfire effects from those early studies did have a negative impact in that it has been used as an excuse to not address misinformation. Uh, and the biggest example of that is Facebook once justified not dealing with misinformation flooding you know, Facebook um, because of the backfire effect. They said, well, if we address it, we could make things worse. 
and that's not in line with our current scientific understanding. But that kind of early legacy of those early studies has kind of propagated since. It hasn't, uh, it hasn't gone away. Yeah, I know that, and there's a bunch of other good information that says that actually going out and debunking these myths is, is good. You know, that, that you can't just let people propagate nonsense uh, unchecked because that's, that's severely detrimental to society uh, to do that. And one thing I think that social media has really highlighted is how easy, and the pandemic I should say as well, is how easy it is for nonsense to spread online, like conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, um, anything that you wanna put under the umbrella of false information that it's spreading faster too than the, uh, than the debunkers and fact checkers can keep up with. And I think people realize this year more than ever that misinformation is dangerous. It can kill. If people are misinformed about something like COVID-19 and then they go out and behave in ways that endanger their community, that has direct health implications. So yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's certainly that when you say it can kill, it's not used metaphorically. That is quite literally that it could cost you your life if, uh, or this misinformation can cost people their lives uh, if not um, properly combated. Hmm. And unfortunately, I think if you are to, you know, you look at the current numbers here in the United States, uh, it could be so much better, but we've had quite a bit of misinformation and just poor leadership due to not acknowledging the science. Um, so that's uh, it's unfortunate, but yeah, people are taking it very seriously now, which is which is wonderful. But you know, I kind of wish they would have taken this very seriously a decade ago, right? But I suppose you know, there's that there's that one saying, uh, the best time to do something or to take action was 20 years ago. The second best time to do it is is today. So you know, now that something's being done about it finally, and people are I want to say people, it's not so much, uh, you know, select few members of like the scientific community, but the, the, the public at large finally sees that this is really, really important, that uh, good information, that acknowledging the science, that, you know, there's nothing uh, more important than having access to good information. But anyway, okay, so, uh, you know, you, you got a PhD in cognitive science, you know, you're working in global warming, combating misinformation. Uh, what did you do after you got your PhD? Did you uh, then decide to like go into academia or stay in academia, I should say? Uh, work has continued on skeptical science, I'm, I'm assuming, because there's still plenty of good, uh, good content coming out. What did your post-PhD look like? So the answer um, to the question of misinformation that I found in my PhD was inoculation. Um, so, so what I came out of with, from my PhD was the way to neutralize misinformation was to inoculate people. Um, and by inoculation, I mean ex expose people to a weakened form of the misinformation, explain the techniques used to mislead people the fallacies, the rhetorical techniques in science denial. And so out of, after my PhD, I, I pretty much went straight from doing a PhD at the University of Western Australia to getting a job at George Mason University in Virginia. 
And so I came to the US at the beginning of 2017 and my immediate um, focus was how do you put inoculation into practice? How do you develop inoculating messages? And I started working with some critical thinking philosophers to develop um, a method for taking potential misinformation, deconstructing it and identifying any reasoning fallacies, any denial techniques in the misinformation um, as, as firstly a way to find out, if, you know, assess the, the veracity of, of claims. Uh, but secondly, as a communication researcher, um, to identify fallacies in misinformation, and then I can take that content and turn it into an inoculating message. So you, uh, so you basically found that the antidote to this uh, diseased information, if you will, that is an, a critical thinking inoculation. Yeah, yeah, it's. I like how you're running with the analogy there, um, <laughs> and. And even to get even more purist with the analogy, um, I, I guess you would consider an antidote kind of a cure after the event, right? Um, inoculating is trying to ideally preemptively get in there and stop it from infecting a person in the first place. Uh, ah, yes, you are correct. Yes. So um, antidote isn't quite right. Yeah, using it as an inoculation. I'm being yeah. very nitpicky. Like, <laughs> no, it's quite all right. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate precision, so. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, so, so, the, yeah. So the way to get ahead of the game, so to speak. So if you have uh, a diseased information and it's spreading throughout society, um, similar to how we have infectious diseases like COVID spreading throughout society, and the way to get ahead of the game is to develop an inoculation or vaccine. Uh, but instead of actually having a vaccine where you get an intramuscular injection, uh, this vaccine for the diseased information then is this uh, is critical thinking essentially. Yeah, that's right. We don't have a vaccine for COVID yet, but we do have a vaccine for COVID misinformation. And essentially it is critical thinking, uh, but more specifically, it's, um, it's exposing people to a weakened form of the misinformation saying here are all the different ways that misinformation can mislead you and once you are aware of these different techniques, those techniques are no longer influential over you. They're basically neutralized. Um, and so the more you can explain the techniques of denial to people and raise their awareness of the rhetorical techniques and fallacies in misinformation, the more inoculated, the more resilient they become and less likely to be influenced. Okay, so yeah, the, so the critical thinking acting as the inoculation to various forms of mis misinformation. I mean, not just global warming, but you know, this can apply to COVID-19 misinformation. This can apply to uh, vaccine misinformation, genetically modified food misinformation. I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be science, I suppose. Uh, it could be all aspects of life. Now, I am curious, what does critical thinking, I suppose, mean to you? So when you, when you say critical thinking, I'm working with philosophers, uh, what exactly is your definition? Because I know it varies slightly depending on the person that you talk to, but there are usually uh, staples to what, when people say critical thinking, what they mean. But I am just, I am curious to hear what uh, critical mean, uh, critical thinking means uh, to you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and to me, critical thinking is a very broad umbrella. And, and generally it's about how to assess 
information, how to think about knowledge, how to um, assess sources of information. Um, and, and media literacy is one part of critical thinking. Um, what I'm working on is a, another subset of critical thinking, which is really, uh, I guess, uh, I tend to call it logic-based critical thinking. I don't have a really good title for it, but it is focusing on um, where information goes wrong. And uh, I'm very, or where arguments go wrong, where arguments are fallacious. And it is important to stress that this is not the be all and end all of critical thinking. Uh, it's really important that people develop the skills to be able to assess arguments, assess the strength of evidence, be able to determine whether something is right or wrong, or, or more likely, like whether the evidence supports a position or, or it doesn't support it. Um, I'm addressing a very specific problem, which is helping people identify attempts to mislead. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very specific mission, so to speak, um, uh, in contrast to the broader question of how should we um, assess information at large. It's a very convoluted answer. I hope that that's clear. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> I, uh, but I categorically agree with the umbrella, that critical thinking is an umbrella. Uh, when I first started to challenge my own beliefs, so obviously, you know, at one point I didn't uh, think that GMO food, uh, genetically modified foods were safe or that there was an issue with vaccines. Uh, when I actually started to dig in and challenge those, I first did that through learning logic. So I learned what exactly an argument is. Uh, so you have the premises, you have the conclusion. Then I learned about how you, you know, the differences um, in various types of arguments. So like from deductive versus inductive and where the arguments can go wrong. So this is where like logical fallacies come into play. So there's a bunch of different logical fallacies out there and all of them render the argument bad for various uh, reasons. And you understand that once you understand, like from a foundational level, how an argument is supposed to be structured from, um, like from, from logic within philosophy. So I definitely think that all critical thinkers should have a decent understanding of philosophical logic. At least that's where I started. And I know that when I, one of the, I mean, I promote that pretty, pretty heavily too, that you understand, like from a first principle standpoint, how it is that you structure an argument. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean that definitely needs to be a part of every critical thinkers like tool toolbox. It definitely needs to be in there. Uh, but there's certainly other things too, right? Uh, that need to be a part of it. Uh, one of them uh, being cognitive biases. I think that it's really important too for people to understand cognitive biases uh, and how they can most mislead you. So a cognitive bias, as you know, isn't a logical fallacy, so it doesn't render an argument bad. However it can distort the way you look at information and then that distortion then can lead you to structure bad arguments. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose what I promote is very similar to what you promote in the sense that it surrounds the argument. Like how do you, how do you structure a good argument? And the reason why I chose this particular route is because these arguments that you tell yourselves then go on to direct your life correct? I mean, like you tell yourselves arguments internally, and then from there you make decisions and those decisions direct the course of your life. So if you're not able to make good arguments, 
to yourself, then you're not going to be directing your life in an optimal manner. At least that's how I view it. I don't know how you feel about it, but. Uh, absolutely. Like, um, like I, having studied both fallacies and cognitive biases, um, <laughs> it does make it easier to spot them within yourself as well uh, and then try to avoid them. And it's, it's very difficult for any individual to avoid them, which is why the scientific method is so important. Um, but we can try to self-examine you know, our own justifications and our own logical processes to conclusions. Um, and, and let me kind of give you my own science denial, uh, I guess, conversion story as well. Coming from an evangelical background, okay. I, I believe creationism for a long time. And uh, the thing that got me to even consider whether it might be false or not was um, when I started studying climate denial and the fallacies in climate misinformation, I approached my uncle. I had a cranky uncle who, um, <laughs> he was actually a creation, a professional creationist. He made videos, he did it for a living. He would go around trying to get into debates with biologists about um, creationism versus evolution. So this was, this is his day gig, still is. Um, and I said to him, um, I'm interested, like I'm just starting to explore this climate change issue um, and researching misinformation. What do you think about the issue? And he sent me a video that he'd um, put together himself of, of a lecture he gave where he basically um, argued against climate change and used a whole series of misinformation arguments. And I was, and I could see all the fallacies in his video. And that made that was the kind of moment when I realized if he's peddling misinformation about climate change, could it be that he's also peddling misinformation about evolution? Uh, and uh, I started um, it, it just approaching the issue of creationism and evolution with a more open mind, with the realization that maybe I was being misled by fallacies, um, and that was what got me examining the empirical evidence for evolution. And once I was able to look at that with a more open mind, it was very obvious that there was many empirical lines of evidence that, that evolution had happened and creationism was not based in fact. But it was really the fallacies that was the key to me, to I guess breaking that ideological hold that was preventing me from objectively looking at the evidence. Yeah, so it was, it was the understanding of argumentation or logic uh, from logic that really ended up breaking it. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, out of everything, as far as ways that you can structure your thoughts, I know that they have like mental models, you can know about like cognitive biases, um, and then there is uh, logic. I think that logic is the most powerful. And the reason why I think it's the most powerful is because it starts with it starts from like first principles, um, how exactly it's very mathematical in nature. And it's also the underpinning of science. And as you know, as I hope that a lot of people who are listening to this know, I mean, logic is it's the best knowledge framework that we have to generate uh, knowledge about the world or truths about the world. And when I say truths, I mean, I'm not talking about like philosophical truth or like a, a uh, immutable fact, but like something that kind of falls out of the scientific process, scientific fact uh, that 
is the best description of reality that we that we potentially have today. And you know that can change and be modified as new science comes out, but it's still the best that we can do. So I think that that's why I think that's that's probably why logic is so powerful, in my opinion, is uh, it's it, it just this first principles thinking, and I, I think you can appreciate that as a physicist, that that first principles thinking of how it is that you structure your thoughts is incredibly powerful. Um, yeah, that was one of the things I think I learned from working with these philosophers was was thinking through arguments and breaking them down into premises and conclusions and exploring whether the premises did logically lead to the conclusion. Um, but the other thing that um, perhaps the most practical thing I took from my collaboration with the philosophers was, uh, it was interesting, like this, I went into this collaboration as me, my background was communication at this point, having finished a, a PhD in psychology and communication, but their background was um, philosophy. And so we came at it with two different goals. Their goal was ideally they would love everyone to, um, to basically think like them, right? And, and that, I guess that's what, that, that's the idea. That's the utopia that every person uh, consider, considers arguments um, from a more logical point of view and interrogates whether they're logically valid and, and identifies, are there any reasoning fallacies in, in these arguments that make it potentially misleading? Uh, but they also said one thing to me, which was one very accessible way to explain fallacies to people is through the technique of parallel argumentation, which is basically using analogies to explain logic or to explain bad logic. Uh, and the technique involved taking, taking some misinformation with a reasoning fallacy in it and transplant that logical flaw into a parallel situation, an analogy. And what that does is it takes what can often be an abstract explanation and makes it concrete, which is the best advantage of analogies in general, whether you're explaining some scientific concept or explaining logic. And I realized while we're doing this collaboration that that's what late night comedians do, like pretty much every night, whenever they're debunking something ridiculous that a public figure says, they'll say, well, such and such said this. Well, that's just like being in this situation and saying the same kind of logical structure. But when you transplant that logic into a more absurd or extreme situation, it becomes very obvious to the layperson that that original argument was logically flawed. And the, the elegance of that approach is, and the elegance of logic uh, is that you don't necessarily have to explain all the science in order for someone to see that an argument is flawed. Um, you can use analogies just to show that the logic is flawed. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, that's brilliant. I, I haven't, I mean, I've seen that, obviously. I mean, I've listened to like Stephen Colbert and things of that nature and other, other comedians like John Oliver and how they pick apart politicians with the flawed arguments. But they, yeah, you're right, they absolutely, they use analogies. And do you, uh, in your experience and what these philosophers that you've worked with have, have said uh, from their own experiences, do they find that it actually works better? So instead of actually using a, a direct argument and then showing how it's flawed, using an analogy 
Uh, and then with the analogy, perhaps the analogy can, like is something that the average person can relate to a bit better. And maybe, maybe that's why. Um, that question is what I've been exploring for the last two or so years. Um, after I finished the critical thinking work um, with, with Peter and David, then I started experimentally exploring different ways of using logic to, uh, to inoculate people against misinformation or debunk or pre-bunk, we've, we've tested both. Um, and so we've tried different ways of explaining fallacies in misinformation using analogies, using more of a critical thinking, um, showing premises in an argument and a conclusion and identifying where the reasoning fallacy is in, in the argument structure. Uh, and um, yeah, because it's an empirical question, right? Which yep. is more effective. And what we found in one experiment where we had, we showed people tweets of misinformation and then the two different types of debunkings afterwards. The, an analogy in cartoon form or a um, deconstruction. And the misinformation was actually vaccination. It was the argument that someone got a vaccine and then they suffered this horrible health adverse effect and now they're in a wheelchair and therefore vaccines are very dangerous. Uh, and for the logic, critical thinking response, we said, well, that argument commits the fallacy of mistaking correlation with causation. Just because two things happen close to each other doesn't mean that one caused the other. Um, but with the analogy, we had a cartoon of a, of a guy wearing all green and yellow sports clothing, like the colors of his sports team. And he said, I was wearing green socks when my team won. So if I wear green socks every time my team plays, then we'll always win. So he's mistaking correlation for causation, thinking his green socks caused his team to win the game, um, which is an obviously ridiculous argument, right? Although my wife said, people actually believe that, so. <laughs> they do, yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised how much superstition there is in the uh, sports community. Uh, right. my, my youngest brother for a while, I don't know if he still does it or not, but He's a huge black Chicago Blackhawks fan. And at one point around the dinner table, he was sitting in a certain spot, like a certain chair, and the Blackhawks got beat like really bad. So now he won't sit in that spot during dinner. <laughs> like, so, um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, with fans, uh, sports fans, and even with the athletes themselves, yeah, there's definitely superstitious type of thinking. And the fallacy being, as you elucidated, the fallacy being committed is the uh, false cause or uh, correlation doesn't equal causation. And you find you see that a lot with uh, from the vaccine skeptic community or the vaccine uh, denial community where, you know, the vaccines cause autism argument. So, you know, hey, my two, my two-year-old got vaccinated, then they developed autism, or I know of somebody's two-year-old got vaccinated, and then, you know, shortly after they developed autism. So therefore, you know, vaccines cause autism, and that's, you know, that's committing the correlation equals causation fallacy, which isn't, you know, which isn't correct. <laughs> so, you know, right. of course, and then, you know, we have these the decades of decades of more robust science showing that vaccines are perfectly fine. Yeah. And so we used eye tracking to measure what people were looking at while we showed them these screens of the tweeted misinformation and then our two different types of tweet responses. 
and what we and then we did mediation analysis to measure what made um, what changed what was the mechanism that changed or, or had an influence on people we found that both approaches the critical thinking approach or the cartoon analogy approach were both roughly equally effective in neutralizing the misinformation but um, the mediation analysis showed us that they were different through different pathways the critical thinking approach was seen as more credible relative to the, the cartoon uh, and it, that increased credibility was the pathway through which it neutralized the misinformation but the cartoon people looked at it more it, it held their attention for longer and that greater attention was the mediator or the pathway through which the cartoon neutralized the misinformation so what we took from that was there are multiple pathways to countering misinformation there's no single one answer and different approaches are effective through different pathways yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting that they saw that the traditional critical thinking route was taken as more credible, but of course, then the cartoons more approachable. Um, yeah. And so, also, they're more likely to be shared, to yeah. like, to be liked, to be commented on, to interact yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because yeah, I'm just thinking about it now. A cartoon is very close to a meme, and the internet absolutely loves memes. Yeah, absolutely loves them. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's okay. So that's really, really interesting. So I suppose uh, at the end of the day, then you can take a multi-pronged approach. So you can do the you can use the cartoons with the more traditional critical thinking routes uh, and combine them uh, to some degree, or you know, use them separately, interchangeably, in order to get your point across. That's yeah, that's right. I, I, yeah. There, there are different approaches and often different approaches suit different messengers. There was some research coming out of Europe that explored vaccine and climate misinformation uh, by Philippe Schmid and Cornelia Betch. Uh, and they tested two different ways of debunking misinformation. Um, the logic-based approach, they called it technique rebuttal, and explaining the science or the facts, which they called topic rebuttal. And they found that both worked um facts or logic um, and so they their conclusion was two things firstly given that different messengers will be more comfortable with a different approach a climate scientist will probably be more comfortable explaining this climate science rather than going into a philosophical critical thinking deconstruction of an argument um, whereas people who are climate science domain experts might be more comfortable um, explaining the fallacies in a more kind of uh, less technical kind of way i guess um, and certainly communication and philosophers will be more comfortable with the critical thinking approach so that was the one thing different different like different messengers work and different messengers might be more comfortable with one or another approach but the second thing they concluded was uh, the logic-based approach has the potential to work across domains. If you explain a denial technique in one area, that can potentially neutralize that technique in other topics. And this is what I also found in my PhD. 
I inoculated people against a specific denial technique using tobacco misinformation as the example, but found that it inoculated that same technique in climate misinformation. And so researchers call this the umbrella of protection. When you inoculate people, it can spread across issues. And to me, that's another reason why the logic-based approach is so powerful. Uh, it can act almost like a universal vaccine against misinformation and uh, potentially inoculate them across the same techniques in lots of different topics. Yeah, that, that is a very powerful technique then, particularly if you're talking about a widespread inoculation across various topics. That is, uh, yeah, that's almost that analogy, you know, you, you teach someone to you give someone a fish, you feed them for a day, but if you teach them how to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. Uh, so if you teach somebody how to think, then you're, you, then they're, gonna, they're going to know how to identify flawed arguments for a lifetime in various areas and whatnot. Uh, so yeah. I like I that mean, analogy too, the, um, the fish. You, you like that analogy? <laughs> Given that red herring is a common fallacy in misinformation, I might try to see if I can cleverly use a pun in there or something. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Te teach them how to spot a red herring and then they, uh, never mind. Maybe that's, maybe that's a bit worse. <laughs> yeah, who knows? You know, think about it and um, yeah, uh, try it. Who knows? Uh, anyway, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I completely agree about the, the teaching, the, the critical thinking aspect over, let's say, just pointing out why certain facts are wrong. And that's kind of what I focus on is teaching people how to think, because I think that the positive spillover effects can just permeate all aspects of their life. And I'm not just talking about being better able to identify misinformation online or to identify pseudoscience, but just in general, if somebody knows how to structure good arguments, then they can use that in all aspects of their life in order to make good decisions right because again decisions are preceded by arguments that you tell yourself because you're going to go through all like this entire thought process you're going to tell yourself arguments you know i should do this or i shouldn't do this and then you'll make a decision at some point and those decisions direct your life so if you are able to if you know the techniques in order to be able to tell yourself good arguments then you should be able to make the best decisions moving forward i mean obviously there's you know it's not full foolproof or anything like that but you're going to be better, uh, better suited to make better decisions than the average person if you know these techniques versus those who don't. Yeah, sure. And on that topic, I'm curious as to whether or not you think that critical thinking is actually taught enough in schools. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. um, I mean, it definitely needs to be taught more in schools, critical thinking. Um, not just the narrow spotting misinformation type of critical thinking that I'm working on, but just broader um, understanding of how science works and understanding how to assess evidence, how to assess information sources, media literacy. Those are more important than ever in this modern day and age with fake news and misinformation and social media um, the way it is currently. Uh, it's so it's crucially important uh, and especially because the research tells us that people students and adults are just not that good at critical thinking at the moment uh, and i have like a little bit of evidence along these lines it's like i know that stanford has published research measuring students literacy and, and finding that it's pretty awful i did um 
we've done some pilot studies with a game, a critical thinking game we're currently developing. And we've done, done some, collected some data in high schools and in undergrad college students and find that they're pretty much exactly the same in, in terms of these critical thinking tasks that we're assigning them. So uh, like it's, it's limited data and you have to take it with a grain of salt, but the impression I get at this stage, and it is backed up by more rigorous research, is that critical thinking is not something that progresses that far from high school to college. I think we need it in college classes as well as in high schools and middle schools. Yeah, I personally am just kind of blown away that our public education system doesn't have more critical thinking incorporated into it. Uh, it it's a primarily focusing on the memorization regurgitation of facts, but that we don't teach people how to think. And, you know, particularly like you were saying, with the limited data that you do have or that we do have available, um, high schoolers, whether they're high school or college, undergraduates, they just are not any, any better at it. And they're actually quite poor at it. And I think that that's, that kind of reflects, I think, a lot of people's impressions about how, uh, how people move through life and, you know, with, with the media, with social media, uh, et cetera, at identifying good information from bad information. Um, and I'm, like, again, going back to the public education system, I just don't understand why these skills aren't taught. It seems, it seems like it would just be essential to, to be being, you know, a, uh, a human being in society that makes decent decisions uh, that you would want, that would be, that would be beneficial and that you would want to do this from a, from a policy standpoint. Like if you were designing public education school curriculums, that critical thinking would be an essential component of it. You know, as somebody that didn't have this and for a long time was wondering, was walking around with a distorted worldview and then wondering why it is that I couldn't, couldn't justify these things, why I kept, you know, failing in arguments and things of that nature, and then eventually learning the skills to become a critical thinker. And then looking back and saying, well, why did I have to go through that entire process? Why didn't society, after everything that we know, just give me these skills when I was going through the public education system? It would just have been so much easier. And you're, you would be inoculating people on a large scale to just fallacious arguments, misinformation, et cetera, giving them a better foundation to direct their lives through good decisions then. Um, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I think that the good news is that um, systems like the next generation science standards uh, are making critical thinking more an integral part of the requirements uh, for curriculum. Uh, and next generation science standards are being adopted by a wide number of states. And then even individual states that don't use NGSS but have their own standards we are seeing critical thinking becoming more prominent there. The challenge though, is that the legacy that teachers are working with is this more memorization and treating students like buckets that we throw facts into. Uh, and and they, they are so uh, under pressure to compress so many facts into their tight semesters that it's hard for them to get, get critical thinking into there as well. So, 
the way I think that we can help that is by providing resources that tick all the fact boxes as well as integrate critical thinking with um, all, the, you know, all the content that they have to cover as well. Uh, that's, that's what I think, like that's what I'm working on. Uh, and I've developed curriculum for high schools with the National Centre for Science Education that did that, that ticked as many NGSS boxes as possible to make it attractive for teachers as well as incorporating critical thinking into it. Uh, and finally, um, over the last year, I've been developing this critical thinking game that I mentioned earlier and talking to climate scientists about it because it was the primary purpose of the game was to address climate misinformation. And I was talking to climate scientists from their perspective as climate experts, but they're also professors at colleges teaching classes. And what blew me away was just how enthusiastic they were for interactive resources like this that, that taught critical thinking as well as climate information. And it made me realize that um, using interactive, engaging um, exercises like a critical thinking game was a really powerful way to essentially use a game as a Trojan horse to get critical thinking in the classrooms. Uh, so that's going to be my focus over at least the next year and, and probably years into the future. Well, I'm certainly behind you. I mean, it's, it's a noble goal and uh, clearly the public education system could use more of it. Uh, and like you said, figuring out how exactly uh, the resources can be made in order to make them attractive so that teachers actually implement them. I think that that is really, really important uh, for future generations. And then of course we have to make some sort of resources available for the current generation, the consumers of information who are adults now and make, you know, they're out there voting, making really, really important decisions every day. And they don't have the skill set in my opinion and in my observation, to go through the large volumes of information that we have access to these days and sift through and pick out you know, the good from the bad. But yeah, there's clearly a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, and you, I mean, you put your finger on the challenge. It's Inoculating the public is a short-term and a long-term problem. It's a marathon and a sprint. And we need to reach students now for a deep long-term impact. But we also need to um, inoculate the general public and adults um, now because they're being bombarded with misinformation. When I started developing this smartphone game, my original thinking was just that short-term get it to the public, get, get the average person playing this game that anyone with a phone can play. And it was only through talking to climate professors that I realized the educational benefits and, and could see that it, it is both a short-term and a long-term solution. Well, yeah, I certainly can't wait for your game to be available uh, because I certainly want to try it out, number one. I'm sure that there's still a number of things that uh, I can learn myself, but I definitely would like to uh, get that out to the audience and to friends and family and things of that nature. So that way that they can start playing. What is, what did you, what, what's the name of it? You said it's Cranky Uncle or something of that nature? Yeah, the game is called Cranky Uncle. You can Cranky check Uncle. it out at crankyuncle.com or at least check out um, 
information about the game and we've got screenshots there. We're currently beta testing. If you've got an iPhone, I can send you a beta version so you can uh, have a look at it. Um, and yeah, we're hoping I, that it'll come out sometime November, December. So November, December. Roughly around the time when, when this episode comes out or maybe a week or two later. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, would like to check it out even if it's the beta version. And uh, for those of you that are tuning in, uh, like John said, it may currently be available or it may be a couple few weeks away, but definitely go to crankyuncle.com and check it out because I think that everyone could use a little bit more critical thinking in their life. And if you've got a fun game, fun game on your phone to do it, why not? Why not? But anyway, John, yeah, it's been, it's been really fascinating talking to you, uh, getting to know your background, how it is that you came to science, and then, you know, the, the graphic, your, uh, your stint in graphic design and how that has come to play a pivotal role, pivotal role in how you communicate science through the cartoons and everything. Uh, that's super interesting um, as well. But then, yeah, I mean, you, the work is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I'm a huge proponent, obviously, uh, as somebody who loves to communicate science and in particular likes to engage in uh, what I call like critical thinking communication, uh, which I think is really, really important because, well, obviously, you know, all this information, we're seeing, seeing the deleterious effects of people not knowing how to figure out what's good, what's bad. They're falling victim to disinformation, to conspiracy theories, fake news, uh, and then they're spreading misinformation themselves, which is, you know, bad information that they don't even realize is bad. And they're just out there and, you know, spreading it around um, like, a, uh, like an infectious disease, if you will, right? That, going back to that analogy. So it's uh, interesting times that we find ourselves in, but it's good to know that we have tools at our disposal in order to fight back against it. And then not only fight back against it, uh, from a, a reactive standpoint, but then we can be proactive about it as well through the inoculation method. Yeah, um, proactiveness is really important, and and even seeing misinformation as an educational opportunity, um, teaching science by explaining how that science can be distorted or misconceived is one of the most powerful ways of teaching science. So, so what you're doing with this podcast and, and just Fostering critical thinking, raising awareness is, is super important work. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation. Is there anything else as far as like websites or resources that you'd like to tell the audience about that they can go to, that you'd like them to check out? Obviously your app is coming out, so crankyuncle.com. If, if people are interested in climate change, um, uh, and particularly more the climate science explanations uh, aspect, uh, skepticalscience.com um, will give you everything you need to know to make sense of um, almost every uh, climate myth that's out there. We've been building this resource for over a decade, a whole team of people, and we have debunkings on um, well over 100 different climate myths. Yes, and I can definitely vouch for you because I've gone to that resource on numerous occasions. It is a fantastic website. Uh, definitely check it out. I also know that uh, you have helped co-author a number of like a debunking handbook. There's handbooks on 
climate misinformation, and then there's a number of other ones that I can't remember the name of, but they're all wonderful resources. Uh, where can people find those? That is a good question. I have a, we have a URL that I created. I'm just trying to remember what it is. If people go, no, that's not it. Um, damn. Uh, <laughs> if you, I think if you just Google debunking handbook or conspiracy theory handbook or consensus handbook, you uh, you should find um, our publications. So most okay. of them are published on the Center for Climate Change Communication website, okay. um, which is climatechangecommunication.org. Uh, and yeah, I've been here for the last four years. So the Consensus Handbook, the Debunking Handbook 2020, and the Conspiracy Theory Handbook are all published on, on the Center for Climate Change Communication website. Okay, perfect. Fantastic. All right. So again, it's been a wonderful conversation. All of those uh, resources that John just mentioned, they'll be linked to in the show notes. So that way you can just click on them and they'll take you right there. Uh, you know, debunking misinformation, climate science, it's all very, very important, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, certain scientific consensuses, such as, you know, vaccine safety, GMO safety, and the focus of this particular talk, global warming, uh, because global warming is one of the greatest threats to modern society that we face today. And it's imperative that not only you tuning in know that it's a, a real threat and that the scientific community has all decades and decades of evidence and we know how to, how to help, um, how to mitigate it and to help correct the problem. So it's important that not only you understand it, but that you know the common arguments that you come across for why people may be, be, uh, be skeptical of climate change. So that way that you can give them the uh, correct argument, you can help to debunk it, or you can provide the, prov uh, provide the resources. It's just really, really important. But anyway, I really hope that uh, for those of you, again, tuning in, that you enjoyed the conversation between John and I. Uh, plenty of great material on the way. So definitely stay tuned until the next episode. Take care.